Welcome to the Marshall Pro Podcast, brought to you for a third year by Cooper Tires, and now in their second year, and so happy they are back as our co-primary partners, the Justice Brothers, for the very first Inside the Sports Car Paddock episode of 2020. Somewhat abbreviated episode. We know at times we can throw six, seven, eight interviews at you. Didn't want to do that this time. So it's just three leading off as usual with our dear friend, race engineer supreme, Jeff Brown, who was at last weekend's IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship Roar Before the 24 at Daytona. What was Jeff doing? Absolutely nothing. Going to have some news here on the team he is expected to be engineering for. Not right now, though. Not doing that job. He's actually there just spectating as a client who's running in the Ferrari Challenge Series that's testing this week. So being Jeff, being a guy who wanted to get in, look around, his son Colin driving for the Dragon Speed LMP2 team, got into town a little bit early in the brand new motor t- motorhome, making up words as I was about to say motor toter home, in the brand new motorhome that he has purchased and just spectated. So said, hey, Jeff, why don't we do the first show of the year with you just talking about what you saw? Bring us in closer to the roar from an engineering side, just a general observation side, some of the smartest eyes in the good old paddock. So we start off with Jeff as we do with every episode. Then we move to our man, Gabby Chavez, IndyCar driver, sports car driver, been with a number of teams on the side in sports car throughout the years. Also a little bit full-time-ish as well. He is with Brian Herta Autosport and their expanding TCR program in IMSA. Caught up with Gabby there talking about this new opportunity. A lot of new things for him. Love the guy. He is a heck of a race car driver and just a supreme fighter behind the wheel. So I think folks are going to love watching him in the number 88 Hyundai Veloster N TCR. Then we close with another IndyCar driver who's finding work in the IMSA paddock. This time for the first time. That being Brazil's Mateus Laced. Quick like a bunny. Multiple race wins in Indy Lights, including the Freedom 100. Then drove for the AJ Foyt team in 2018 and 2019. Uh, Not exactly a great time to be there, unfortunately. So young Mateus, and he is still extremely young, making his sports car debut at Daytona last weekend with the JDC Miller Motorsports team in their second, the number 85 Cadillac DPI VR. So spoke with those three nut jobs. So that's what you're going to hear here. Jeff Brown first, followed by Gabby Chavez, and closing with Mateus. Mateus is driving at the time. A little inside secret here. We actually recorded this yesterday, and when I went to save it, my entire computer threw me a double bird, and it didn't blue screen, but it wouldn't come back to life. So I had to kill it, and that file then went away. So uh, spoke again today and just had to do it when he was available. So while the audio quality might not be perfect, I'm sure you've spoken to people while driving before and you can hear what he says. Hopefully, nonetheless, enjoy the kid. Really enjoyed getting his first time, first take on 
sports cars have on a roof over his head and all the differences between a DPI and an IndyCar. So if you're a fan of both, you really might enjoy Mateus's insights here, learning on the job. All right, let's get going with the very first Inside the Sports Car Paddock of this 2020 year. Thank you to all of you for listening. And we might not be doing these every week. Going to do them as often as possible. So this is what we got to start. And we will be preparing to do more as soon as we can here. Brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Jeff Brown, you weren't perched atop a timing stand. You were hopefully <laughs> drinking some great coffee inside the brand new uh, Transac Racing Services uh, motor coach. Motor coach, yeah. I brought the uh, brought the new motorhome uh, along for uh, a nice place to stay. Parked in the driver owner lot and put on my dad hat and watched my kid uh, wheel the Dragon Speed LMP2 car and just uh, kind of hung out. It was a very strange um strange feeling for me not to have a car to run and all that a little a little sad but um but still fun to be at the track see all the people um you know re reconnect with uh guys see what's going on look for look for some gainful employment which i think uh, made some pretty good strides in i can't announce anything yet but uh pretty sure um I'd lewis say hamilton formula one lewis hamilton formula one you heard it here first <laughs> well, maybe not that, but uh, I think I'll have non-civilian clothes on for the for the 24 hour at least, and I'll be uh, stuck in a pit stand for 24 hours. So um, I'm pretty happy about that. I'll uh, maybe next week we can say who with and give details, but uh, gainful employment, so always a good thing. So our plan, our good old strategy, was knowing that you would be there and I would not. And that you would be <clears throat> spectating, albeit spectating with probably the best pair of eyes and ears uh, <laughs> of anyone on pit lane. Figured it might be fun to open the year. Just some general observations and thoughts from a everything winning race engineer who was there last year with the Core Autosport Nissan Onroke DPI, but just poking around and yeah. using his his powers of observation to report back with some findings so where should we start over the three days of what jeff brown saw at the roar well it was interesting because i got to look around a little bit more than usual normally i'm focused on my car and what my drivers are doing and my setups and all of that and now i kind of got to see what other people were doing it was it was quite similar to in the past um my ex team owner john bennett refused to call the roar the roar he liked to call it the ca- a car show huh. everybody everybody brings out their car with their shiny new paint jobs doesn't show how fast they are doesn't show what their performance is doesn't do anything but show off their cars drive around a little bit kind of keep secrets and not show everything and then puts them in the trailer and goes home and it was that again, you was know, it? The, you know, the dreaded BOP, you know, I know uh, what, uh, is that the first time we said it this year? And maybe it maybe is, not the, but okay. keep in mind, you're not working for a team right now, so you can't get fined by IMSA. So let's burn them up. <laughs> right. Let's burn them, burn them. Well, it's, 
you know, it's still a thing um, for sure. And the roar is one of those times when everybody's a little pins and needles and what's, you know, what do we show? What don't we show? What's IMSA going to find? What can they see? Um, I have to say it was super refreshing to see the LMP2 cars just going flat out all the head, all the time, no BOP concerns, because, of course, that's a fully homologated class with no BOP um, allowed. It, it just it, it just run what you got. It has become somewhat of a spec class by default. It's all Orica Gibsons, except there was one Riley Multimatic car there, but the other six were all Orica Gibsons, so it's it's kind of a spec class by default. But those guys were just going flat out. That was really cool to see. You could you looked at the times and you looked at the drivers and you could look at ten lap averages and you could really you know you could learn something there. The other classes, it was you didn't really know what was going on. Um, some people. You know, they, they don't want to, sh- obviously, they don't want to show everything they got, but IMSA is getting really, really good at all the data systems on the cars and all the timing loops and everything to to really see, uh, you know, what the actual performance is. Um, they, last year, toward the end of last year, IMSA stopped giving the teams as much timing loop and trap speed information as they used to in the past. So now, Daytona, instead of being cut up into eight or nine segments around the racetrack and speed traps, you now have three segments. The track's just cut in thirds. It's much less insightful for the teams. So it makes it harder to play the BOP game, the management game. But, you know, you would see the same thing. Practice would start, pick a class, DPI, GTD, GTLM, doesn't matter. Somebody would go out and run a time. And and not a fast time necessarily, but a good representative time. Then and all the little ducks fell in would line. follow exactly. <laughs> There'd be a guy a tenth behind that, and a tenth behind that, and then somebody would quote make a mistake and run a little bit quicker than the best time, and boof, everybody would follow right behind that. And then and they played that game. Nobody wanted to be the fastest, and if somebody kind of went a little faster, everybody notched up right behind them. So. So I wouldn't read too much into the performance that we saw at the Roar. Um, you know, uh, they have this qualifying thing now. Yeah, I'm looking where, at those results right now, it's starting with DPI, where mm-hmm. the Mazda, 77 Mazda that set the new track, official track record last year in qualifying, dipped below it by, a what, a few hundreds, I believe. A few hundreds, uh, right. Yeah, Olivier Pla set a 133.324 yep. behind him you had both Acuras the fastest of which was 2.19 seconds behind just a little bit over two tenths of a second then you move back to the fastest Cadillac which is P4 overall <laughs> 3.328 seconds off of that fastest time so you know that right. that that space between a quarter second and half second and I know that I did hear from some Cadillac friends that they were a little grumpy BOP-wise, but I can also say that I spoke with some non 
Cadillac driving friends as well. Mm -hmm. And they thought that that was complete manufactured nonsense and that there was plenty there. So that's not a casting aspersions at Cadillac. I would say, if you agree, Jeff, that's just the roar. That's what it is. And and that's really what you're supposed to do. You know, I saw a little press release thing or some quotes from Montoya at Penske saying that, oh, they think they're okay. The Mazda is really good. And I don't think the Cadillacs have shown what they can do. Well, that's what he's supposed to say. You know, that's what you're supposed to do. I, I'm not, that's not a bad thing or that's how you play the game these days. And, and did Cadillac show what they can do? I would certainly hope not because they are not doing their job then. And Acura shouldn't have and Mazda shouldn't have. Um, and, and so that's, that's how you play the game. And as you said, Marshall, that's, that's the roar. That's what it's, a, that's what it's about. It makes it, you know, so everybody plays that game. It's not like some guys are and some guys aren't. And from a race engineering standpoint, it presents kind of a, different challenge you know normally you think well we're trying to find a good setup and we're trying to make our car uh, handle great and do all the things you can to do a good lap time but because you're not looking for ultimate lap time because of the BOP potential changes the race engineer kind of changes his approach to the roar because you don't want to just drive around for three days and not learn anything so what I can say is everybody was working on things that will help them for the race, which things like long runs, um, tire degradation, um, fuel mileage and simple things like they have new car. A lot of people have new cars or rebuild cars. Well, let's, let's run the car out of fuel two or three times to see exactly. Can we get that last liter or can we get all the way down to a half liter before we start to starve the engine for fuel. Where exactly can we make it to, can we, if we don't have our fuel alarm before the bus stop, can we go around another lap or do we have to stop, stop that lap? You know, all of those race kind of scenarios that they can work through. A lot of people have new drivers, so they're trying to acclimate the new drivers and work on driver change practice. So a lot of new crew guys. So they're working on pit stops and, and all the things that that I've always said the roar is essentially the only practice before the race. And you better come and unload and be ready to go on Thursday race day. And that's really nothing more a race week. That's nothing more than a shakedown. You better not be trying to find a setup or make your car fast or make it consistent or make it drivable thursday race day you're just shaking down the final rebuild of the car maybe bedding in some brakes running in your race gearbox if you haven't done it at the roar um that's all you're doing so there was a lot of that what i call housekeeping going mm. on at the roar what did you see as well jeff from a <clears throat> class i guess settling standpoint if we look at what imsa was at least suggesting they might do uh, there was talk about slowing the GTD class to create a greater separation from not just a GTLM, but prototypes as well. The GTD cars are just getting to be really fast, especially since they moved to Michelin tires last year. It was a goal yeah. to do that. 
I, I realize that Daytona as well is a one-off unique, doesn't relate to anything else BOP. It's just mm-hmm. for there and there alone, but I'm not totally sure if I saw that separation here, if that's what they were aiming to create. Did you? Yeah, I don't know that it was much in lap time, and I still heard the the complaints. You know, I, I never really thought last year that it was a big, big, big problem, but I know they tried to slow the GTD cars down a little bit. Um, the times have certainly, you know, we kind of lose track of how fast these cars are going. GTLM pole was a good Daytona prototype time three, <laughs> four, three yeah, years yeah. ago. I mean, 42s. I mean, that was a good DP time not, uh, when the whole DP thing ended. You know, they got into the 41s and there were some 40s. But, but I mean, a 42 with a, GTL, with a GT car is ridiculous around Daytona. That's fast. So there, the, one of the problems they have, uh, P2 is a good example They've slowed the P2 cars down with some aero um, rules, and they've taken horsepower away from them to keep them away from the DPIs. And they've they've moved the DPI performance up like we talked about uh, in our last episode. And so they've got a good separation in lap time there. But what happens is um, some of the LMP2 drivers are complaining that, you know, you come out of the bus stop, there's a GTLM car or even some of the GTDs, the slippery GTD cars, ahead maybe 20 car lengths, and you gain on them in fourth gear, you shift the fifth, you gain on them, you get kind of right alongside of them in fifth, and you're going by them, and you shift the sixth, and all of a sudden, you're in a dead heat race with a GTD car. Mm. You can't pull away from them. They're, they're nearly as fast as an LMP2 car in a straight line. And then, of course, you get to the brake zone, and you can... P2 car can beat them in the brake zone, but not as bad as you would think, especially into some of the slower corners. Because with the ABS and the Michelin tire, those GTD cars stop really well. So now suddenly you have two cars with very disparaging or different performance characteristics, but they're kind of racing each other in awkward situations where you don't really want to be racing each other. And so I think that's what IMSA was trying to get away from a little bit is just get that separated. And not sure if they, if they did that because still, you know, a good example, turn three at Daytona, the first hairpin between there and the kink, a, if you're in a LMP two car and you're behind a GTLM right on his bumper in the apex of turn three, you cannot pass him before the kink. You just can't, you just don't have enough power. You can't do it. So now you end up with GT cars and prototypes kind of, again, awkwardly in the way of each other. Neither guy wants to be in the way and, and it's just awkward, but, but that's just, that's the way it is. Let's look, Jeff, at some of the new cars you observed. We have the first rear engine Corvette, in Corvette Racing's history, the CAR making its debut, we had new Porsche, right? The 911 mm-hmm. RSR 2.0. You mentioned the, it wasn't new, but it was, I guess, glad to see it survive the 
Zombie Apocalypse, the old Riley Multimatic Mark 30 P2 right. car. Granted, that uh, was involved in a crash Saturday and did not return afterwards, but we right. also had the, the new twin-turbo V8 Aston Martin Vantage GT3. Mm-hmm. Share some mm-hmm. thoughts on some of the uh, the pretty new toys and even the old uh, Frankenstein mobile that you saw running around. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, uh, the Corvette... Um, I don't know. I, I mentioned this to somebody um, as we were looking at it. Uh, I was, I got a chance, actually a rare chance to go out and watch on track. So I hung out in turn three a little bit. I hung out in turn five. I watched cars get over the bump in turn six and tried to do some shock evaluation stuff. I couldn't help myself. I know I'm supposed to just spectate, but <laughs> that's, that's what I was doing. And the Corvette, I said, boy, that man, that Corvette looks awesome. And somebody said, yeah, but does, what do the real diehard Corvette fans think about it? They might not like it. And I was like, I don't know, but it looks pretty cool. It, and it sounds great. I mean, it's, you know, I'm not really a fan of any kind of race car. I'm a fan of the fastest race car always, whether I don't care how it looks, but that one looks pretty, pretty sweet and sounded really good. And and it's also fun to go out in those corners and listen to the TC and how it's working and the intricacies of when it comes on, watching it, when it hits the, a bump and what it does on a bump and hearing it, hearing the TC go off. And, uh, boy, the, the Cadillac uh, DPIs and the Corvette GTLM car have some really good TC. That stuff works fantastic. So that was a cool car to see. Um, and, uh, what else? I guess the Aston Martin, it didn't seem to run very much. It seemed, I don't know if they had problems or maybe I just missed it a lot, but, uh, it was great to see a new manufacturer in GTD. That's I think what IMSA needs. Um, because it was sad to see less than 40 cars enter yeah. for this year's Daytona. And we um, might be down to 38, 38, yeah. 39 by the time the race starts. I know that Bobby Urgel mentioned they aren't sure if they're going to be able to put their second car, the number 51 Areca P2 car, mm-hmm. in the race. They need to find drivers for that, funded drivers. And also yep. we had the uh, factory, number 98 Aston Martin, and GTD uh, with Paul Dallalana. <laughs> I'm not laughing because it's funny, but I just I always find it somewhat amusing when Okay, so you're one of those rare people on the planet who decides that strapping into a large chunk of metal and going 200 miles an hour is fun. Don't get hurt doing that. Skiing, right. though? Yeah, absolutely. Right. You're going to get sidelined from, you know, uh, strapping into this death mode. You know, any vehicle potentially is a death mobile, but you'd right. think uh, you might suffer the worst injuries from crashing a race car at high speeds. But no, skiing. Right knocked Ski. Paul uh, and Paul mm-hmm. obviously being uh, the big portion of the funding for that car. So we'll see if that uh, there ends up being a solution that brings that out. But nonetheless, yeah, could be yeah. 38 cars. And I'm guessing yeah. that could be something that stood out as well. It Excuse did. me. Instead you of know. making that long walk <clears throat> to the secondary uh, pits, uh, the, the covered pits, the ones that aren't actual fully enclosed garages, uh, right, not, not having to do that. Nobody Might. there, and huh. it was, yeah, exactly. And it was. I remembered back as recently as 2017, 
when we at core ran our Porsche GTD car that year. And, um, that's when you could qualify any driver you wanted. And I was going to qualify John Bennett because it gave him extra, um, time in the car with uh, new tires and not much traffic. So it had kind of been our thing to, to qualify John during that, during that session. And, I actually remember going to the IMSA officials and asking them, okay, if John qualifies outside the top 63, because that was the limit, will we still get to start the race because we're a season-long entrant? And they said, yes, uh, we will, you know, if you commit to a season-long entry, you will get to start the race, and we will have to exclude some other non-season-long entrants from the race. So I was concerned that we couldn't make the 63 limit in 2017, and now we have under 40. It's kind of it was that was obvious and and a topic of some IMSA officials I talked to. It's you know it's not going unnoticed, and their concern might be a little bit too much, but they're. Um, it's obvious to them and they want to fix that and they're trying to do what they can um, to fix that. So it was nice to see, you know, a new GT3 car at least show up a new manufacturer and we just need, we need more of that. I guess we lost Nissan in the DPI end, but we gained Aston Martin in the DPI field. So, I mean, in the GTD field. So that's good. Another thing that came to mind as well, Jeff, and maybe we'll use this as we start to close is looking at the, and I'm using air quotes, qualifying on Saturday for the, mm-hmm. the Pro-Am classes, that being LMP2 and GTD. Uh, what stood out for you from both of those outings, knowing that, uh, again, it looked like the purity of P2 stood as it should, meaning uh, yeah. this is something where uh, we absolutely have, you know, the the Areca O7s operating as they should. You know, we know that it is aptitude being demonstrated compared to uh, anything BOP related. But right. if we look at GTD, that is where things obviously get a little bit more interesting, right? We have the the quote again, air quote pole. That pole right. just being used to set uh, garage position and uh, pit box location. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had Frankie Montecalvo, who was fastest in GTD in one of the Aim Vassar Sullivan Lexus's at a 46.7. Uh, he was followed by uh, Shank Acura, a uh, little over a tenth behind behind him. We had Turner Motorsport and their ancient but awesome BMW M6, uh, 0.16 behind. Uh, <laughs> if you look behind them, we had the fastest Lamborghini, granted, uh, later penalized for not having the correct uh, gear ratios in the car, but we had a Lamborghini fourth different mark in the top four now, point uh, one right. seven behind. Uh, if we go back to the next new mark on the list, uh, that would be Ferrari uh, sixth overall in class, point two one three behind uh, Monte Carlo's Lexus. Jump back a little bit. Uh, the fastest Porsche uh, was seventh, point uh, four three seconds behind. Behind them, the first Audi point. Four five, uh, Mercedes is really the only brand among all uh, that was a little bit out to lunch. If we're talking fastest in qualifying, 
Uh, that was 0.561 seconds behind the Lexus. I'm not including the Aston Martins because, as you said, didn't turn a bunch of laps and brand new cars are they're having to learn by a brand new team right. with a harder racing and the uh, factory team didn't run. But if we look at the wide variety of manufacturers in GTD in qualifying, where we assume they might be trying harder <laughs> than other sessions, the call it a half second spanned a whole, you know, Lexus, Acura, BMW, Lamborghini, Ferrari, Porsche, Audi, Mercedes. I don't know. Uh, 0.561 seems like a number that wouldn't shouldn't bother me too much if we're talking BOP, or is that too much on a big no, track I, like that? I think actually that might what you just described might actually point out the. This might sound very strange, but the benefits of BOP and why we have it and why why we need it as much as I hate it and lots of people hate it and fans hate it and all of that. How in the world are you going to get a family sedan Lexus to run within a 10th of a Lamborghini (laughs) and a Ferrari? And how how are you going to do that in the real world of things? You know, you're going to do that by BOP and then, and then, whether you've scared everybody into running that close to each other or the BOP is actually that accurate doesn't really matter. The plain, simple fact is we put the silver drivers in the, in the GTD cars. And because one nice thing is because we put the silver drivers in and let them qualify, you can pretty much let those guys go as fast as they can go because they're not going to, blow the BOP out of the water with some amazing lap time because they're not going to be as fast as the pros. So you've, you've protected your BOP by not putting the super fast pro driver in the car. So those guys are probably going as quick as they can. Those amateur semi pro silvers and some of them are fake silvers and I know all of that, but, but still that's a pretty good representation. And there you have it. You know, we have a diverse group of, manufacturers with cars that on face of it should not be competing against each other all within that close group that you just described. So, you know, I have to actually say there's why BOP is still with us because it does produce that kind of a, a close racing for the fans. Mr. Brown, what comes to mind as a closing thought? for fans who will either be attending the Rolex 24 here in a couple of weeks or Mm -hmm. watching from home, what should they look for? What should they look forward to based on everything you just observed and frankly helped me a ton by playing my eyes and ears? Because when I'm in the corners, I'm looking at a lot of the same things and listening to a lot of the same things. But what should fans look for at this little smaller than we're comfortable field? But what should folks yeah. look for to enjoy? Because clearly, there's a lot. There's a lot. Well, I would say the first thing I always tell people who are actually attending the race is, since it's 24 hours, roam around. I mean, go to the garages. Cars will have a problem. They'll come to the garage. You'll see crew members doing crazy things, uh, trying to get the car back running. Um, you'll see things that you never get to see up close. 
So roam around in the garages. If you have access to the pits with a, a proper credential, look in the back of the pits, see what they're doing. Look at um, what different crew members do. Look at the tire specialist and kind of just watch a guy for 10 minutes. And what is he really doing? And there's so much going on other than what's happening on the racetrack. Of course, that's interesting too, to watch the cars in the corners and stuff, but, but to see what the operation entails and what everybody else is doing is always a interesting thing. Go down to the, michelin tire tent and watch those guys fit tires at three in the morning and see tires coming in off from the tire specialist on each team and those guys changing them and coming back out with new uh tires mounted on the wheels and the balancing and the procedure that 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 michelin has um you know there's a lot of other things that i think some fans would really enjoy that they that they can see especially in a 24-hour race because you have time to to go see that as far as on the track i think you're going to see the same kind of thing you're going to see everybody positioning jockeying still running flat out this is this is not this is not the ford versus ferrari days that we saw in the movie where you're protecting the car and the brakes and the gearbox and everything else the cars are built reliable enough where you're going flat out every lap now there's some you take a little bit less risk you'll manage your risk the risk tolerance will start off you'll be careful at first but and you'll ramp it up and take more and more risks as you get going but everybody will be positioning themselves to be on the lead lap with three hours to go let's say if you're on the lead lap of your class with three hours to go you have a legitimate chance to win and that's what the first 20, 21 hours are all about. The first 10 hours are don't mess up. Just don't do anything spectacular. Just don't screw up. The next eight hours are now let's get going. Let's make sure we're positioning right and trying to see what's going on, making sure your fuel windows are working out the way you want them and your driver rotation is right. You've got all your um minimum drive times met by your amateur drivers if you're in the p2 or dpi class i mean our uh, gtd class and then and then the real race starts with three or four hours to go and and that's when it all all be decided and that's when the bop and the concern of the bop for all the teams goes right out the window then it's just the win and they don't care that it's everything they got in the last, at least the last couple hours. And if you're there in person, next episode here of inside the sports car paddock, not sure if it's going to be next week might be the following, but leading into the Rolex 24 when we should have race adjustment BOP table out to discuss, maybe hopefully right. we'll also have, I might just do a separate racer news story about who you're engineering for. You're one of them famous engineers and stuff who gets their own <laughs> stories. Uh, right, once, great. Once folks know where you will be uh, helping out, uh, maybe those who are in attendance and those who can get on to pit lane or in the garage yeah. can come look you up and Absolutely. say hello and say thank you. So, as always, Jeff, love these conversations and look forward to our next. Lots of fun, Marshall. Let's talk about it before Daytona when it works out. And, um, yeah, I'll fill you in on anything else I learn uh, between now and then. 
can't wait. Lewis Hamilton is going to be so happy with his new engineer. This is awesome. <laughs> I can't wait. That's going to be fun. <laughs> it's always a good day when we have Gabby Chavez getting paid to drive a race car. I think most of us would love to be talking about your new number 88 Brian Herta Autosport IndyCar entry for the 2020 season. But, you know, the number 88 Brian Herta Autosport Hyundai Veloster and TCR in IMSA's Michelin Pilot Challenge Series. It's got a nice ring to it, too, man. Tell us about how this came together and about this new phase of your career. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Marshall. It uh, certainly doesn't sound too bad, does it? Um, well, it's it's to me, it's got it's hard to pinpoint an exact moment uh, of how this kind of came together. We just you know, um, I've always kept in touch with Brian after the, you know, our, our season in 2015 and really, you know, <clears throat> obviously see him on track, you know, during the race weekends, but also off track. You know, we talk every now and then on the phone and, and through text. So, um, it, you know, I, we've always kind of stayed in touch. Um, and I think it was maybe around um, either October or November of, of 20 or, or last year, 2019. Um he gave me a call and, and he, he said that he might have an opportunity for me. Um, and if I'd be interested, uh, obviously, you know, I, uh, I said yes. And he said, all right, well, we'll be in touch. And maybe we spoke another once or twice after that. And it, it was, um, it was probably exactly at two or three phone calls later. He said, all right, well, I mean, you know, this is pretty much a done deal. Are you, are you a hundred percent sure you want to do it? And I said, of course, how could I say no? And, uh, it was just kind of like that. It just, it just really happened over only a few phone calls. I don't think I've ever been part of a, such straightforward and easy, uh, we call it kind of negotiations, um, you know, in, in racing ever before. So it's, it's a, it's a nice change. <laughs> Let's talk Gabby about how this relationship started and then ended in its first iteration, because it is directly tied into the resumption of this relationship. So you go and win an Indy Lights Championship and move up to the series. Brian Herta Auto Sport, you show a ton of potential in 2015, and we're expecting you to continue with Brian. This is back when they were just an in, you know independent Honda-powered team. In 2016, he was. Every conversation I had with Brian towards the end of the year, even into the offseason, was about continuing with Gabby, really thought we built something great in his rookie year and believe in him to do even more if we come back and do it again. Then we had some sponsor dramas, not related to you, really not related to Brian. Some shady things happened that all of a sudden made Brian have to step back and say, you know what, for us to exist and survive in 2016, we're going to have to more or less shut down as an independent team, merge our entry with Michael Andretti ended up having Alexander Rossi in the car who Michael had signed. And next thing you know, the grand plans that you and Brian wanted did not come together for that sophomore season in IndyCar because of, frankly, some dickish behavior by people on the business side. Tell us about how that shook out. And yet you and Brian still ended up in a good place afterwards because he said somehow sometime in the future, I'm going to work together again with that guy. And here we are. 
Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, pretty much spot on. You know, we, we finished the, the 2015 season with, you know, kind of a, a few performances here and there that really showed some some really good promise. You know, if we kind of kept on uh, adding to our form during the off season and then into what would have been, you know, 2016, um, you know, and ba- I mean, we we pretty much kept the relationship going as if it was a done deal. You know, every every conversation that we had together was already um, we had we had actually already, you know, quote unquote, hired a, a, an uh, an additional engineer for the following year. We were already working, you know, and with the simulator stuff, you know, conference calls with the engineering team you know, pretty much acting like, like a team that was ready to go. I, in fact, I remember, in fact, we actually had booked tickets for the first, uh, like, off-season Sebring test. I believe that was around January. So everything kind of seemed like a done deal for both of us. You know, we were working with a third party that, you know, promised, uh, you know, some stuff, and, and it was it ended up out to be at the end of it. Um, you know, now in hindsight, you know, uh, complete, you know, shady lie which you know we want we don't want to have to go into that but um n- nothing that was you know due to brian or or myself um so we we were both put in a very tough position for myself obviously you know very late in the game with nowhere really to go or to look uh, and to brian obviously in a position to where the only way to keep you know um you know his car on track and and some of his personnel employed was was to kind of join up with with the andretti team and you know, kind of the rest from there is history, but we always, we always kept a really good relationship. Um, you know, we understood that, you know, what kind of happened there was, was, uh, just completely out of both of our control. And we, we, we always felt there was maybe some unfinished business. And, um, you know, I think we have here the chance to, uh, to work, uh, through that now. And, and, um, the relationship has always been, you know, been really good. I always, uh, have admired Brian. Uh, on and off the track he's got a slow kid for a race car driver but other than that he's done a pretty <laughs> good job of things um so gabby you are going to be in call it the i don't want to say the feeder series the training series for imsa's WeatherTech sports car championship this is a place you've been if we're talking the top series in the top class in prototype right seeing you in some really fast prototypes seeing you in some fun stuff. If we look back to your days in the Delta wing with Dr. Don Panos and such, tell us about not being part of the headline show, but what appears to be part of a really important and growing Hyundai presence in sports car racing in the Michelin pilot challenge series. Also with Brian's direct relationship, really leading relationship with Hyundai, you and Flying Ryan Norman from Ohio are going to be the third car in their uh, Hyundai Veloster and TCR effort. Tell us about this. Is this a a mental step down for you at all? Are you bummed you're not playing in the big series, or how are you phrasing this challenge ahead? Well, I mean, you know, as a driver, you always strive to be, you know, to the top, you know, whatever and wherever that may be, but. I think the the really interesting thing about about the IMSA paddock um, is that you know you could go you know all the way from DPI down to you know we'll call it the TCR series, um, and you got pro guys and AM guys in every step of the way. 
So even though you, you know, you, it, it essentially is kind of like the support series, uh, for the weather tech, um, championship, you still guys, you still have guys, uh, with the caliber, like Alexander Premat who came over, uh, in the Audi, you have guys like Ryan Eversley, you know, obviously, you know, long time factory guy for Honda. Um, so you still have those type of caliber drivers. You got factory and manufacturer involvement and obviously, you know, now talking specifically about Hyundai, obviously it's, um, you know, I, I don't think I've ever been a part of a program with so much dedication, you know, from, from the brand itself. Uh, and obviously they're very young in, in the motorsport part of it. So it's really, really cool to see. Um, obviously the, this series, the TCR, the WTCR, I should say in Europe is, is huge. And, uh, you know, one of the major driving force of development for, you know, the, the street and road cars uh, for each manufacturer. So um, there's a lot of cool stuff that, you know, maybe, maybe some people, you know, don't see from the outside that really gets, you know, gets me excited about this. So you are going to be in a brand new chassis for you and Ryan Norman at the roar here last weekend. Saw you get a chance to climb in. Wasn't your first time, but uh, so you got a chance to climb in Sunday morning. Boom fastest lap in TCR Gabby Chavez. So that was pretty good for folks who know you as Mr. Open wheel guy though. What's it like adjusting to front wheel drive turbo torque steer? Uh, there is air quotes arrow on the car. Not a lot. Um, this is a very different creature for you to drive. What has it been like adjusting to it? And is it something you can enjoy? Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly something different. I, uh, you know, it's um, t- to me, it's it's more similar than different than you know to like a open wheel car. So that has been something that's been rel- a relatively easy transition. You know, you get in, and right away you're you're not going, oh wow, this is you know this is completely different. It might take me a while. Now it's you know you're still driving a race car. It's um, it's got some arrow. Uh, yes, not 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 a ton, but more than a pe- than a lot of people would expect. Uh, especially the first time I drove it, I was like, "Wow, this is still driven, you know, by you know the the, the things you talk about in an arrow car, right heights, you know, splitters, wing angles, all that stuff um, are very sensitive and and are affected very much by the you know the setup of the car and traffic. Uh, so that all that is is very similar." Um, you know, and just the biggest thing really is, is like you said, you know, the, the front wheel drive that torques here and, um, you know, just the amount of movement that goes in the car. So that was the, the biggest thing is, you know, an open wheel, everything's fairly stiff, you know, no real movement as far as like suspension and the chassis. Well, not much that you can perceive anyway, you know, from, from, from the driver's seat, uh, visually, you obviously feel that, all, you know, all that going through, through your butt, but, you know, in a, I guess in a touring car, you know, all of that is very, very exaggerated. So you have to just kind of be a step ahead of, of uh, what you're doing almost. you got to anticipate, you know, the, 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 the body roll and the weight transfer. So that's been a very, very fun thing to, to learn and to try to master. Let's close, Gabby, on an item or two related to two Indy Lights guys, right? Ryan is someone we thought we might see in IndyCar maybe a limited campaign, who knows, not saying he couldn't pop up as well, but thinking that we might see a guy won a couple races over the last few years in Indy Lights with Andretti Autosport, 
thought that might be where we saw him coming. You obviously with your great Indy Lights success as well. A, do you love the fact that we got the Road to Indy showing out here in uh, in TCR, but also the fact that we have two guys really bringing talent that has been IndyCar grade, uh, if not meant for IndyCar, uh, that being Ryan, who hopefully will get there at some point. Tell us about this union between the two of you, getting to know each other, and what you think you two might be able to do in your debut season. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, as a driver, I've always, I've always loved kind of venturing out and, and trying new stuff. Um, you know, it's it's always fun to to be kind of looking for new challenges. Um, so that's always something that I've, I've, I've tried to do. But, um, you know, and in, in, in I guess in Ryan's case, um, certainly, you know, after a pretty good season in Delights, you know, uh, what was it? I think a win, a bunch of podiums, um, almost a win at the Freedom 100, right? So that's, that's a pretty, it was a pretty high caliber field again this year, or rather 2019. So yeah, you might have thought that the natural step was to maybe do a few races in IndyCar or, or something like that. Um, but you know, I guess, I guess that's kind of my game, right? I'm going to have a, a very talented and fast, uh, teammate, And I think we probably, uh, at least in, in my view would make the, the best pairing, uh, that I've seen so far, the, you know, for the season. So that's, that's going to be really, really good. And, um, obviously that doesn't really mean that, you know, him or I could, couldn't, uh, you know, try to try to do something, you know, in one of the free weekends, uh, if the right opportunity presents itself in IndyCar. And that you knew that's where I was going for the last question. So on that subject, uh, we need more Gabby Chavez in IndyCar. I know you're obviously not a guy writing a check to participate in the series. Have you had any conversations with folks that might be interested in the uh, the Gabby Chavez experience at the Indy 500 or elsewhere? If not, how do we get that going? Well, I think, yes, just to some degree. You know, I've always been able to kind of connect some people and you know someone that may have a uh, you know a chassis someone that you know is interested in maybe being part of a program and, and bringing some sponsorship so I've, I've always tried to do that um you know from the outside but when it really comes time to putting something together um you know it's uh it's just very important to make sure that you you have plenty of time to do it because you know the last thing especially you know with the experience that um that I've been through in my years in IndyCar, the last thing I want to do is put myself in a position uh, to where I'm just kind of participating. That's, that's something that I don't, don't really enjoy doing. Uh, if I'm going to be on track, it's, it's going to be to, to try and, you know, and win and, and uh, you know, be noticed. So um, that's, that's, that's kind of my stance on it at the moment. I'd, I'd love to do it. I'd love to be back. You know, there's, there's nothing, um, you know, as, as passionate, um, as I am from the Indy 500, and you know, I think about that that place and that race every, you know, pretty much every every day of my life. So, um, I, I definitely want to be there, but it it you know, just kind of thinking a little bit with a little bit more more experience and a little bit, uh, you know, I, I don't know if wisdom is the right word, but maybe just a little bit more years and in, you know, involved in racing. Uh, I I'd be very hesitant to do it if it wasn't with the right people um, and organization, you know. I hear you. I hear you. Well, keep doing what you're doing, my man. Happy for you, even happier, having seen the potential of a Chavez and Brian Herta Autosport collaboration in IndyCar. Stoked to see 
what you guys are going to be able to do here in TCR. And I don't know, are, are we, are you getting a delivery of a, like a quad turbo Veloster and at home or something? Tell me there's some perks beyond just driving a race car. <laughs> well, there, there certainly is. There certainly is. I'm a, let's just say I'm already looking at colors and stuff. So there, there certainly is some of that, which is, uh, you know, obviously, you know, just a little bonus, uh, you know, and, and it's fun as, as a driver to be able to, um, you know, kind of see what it's really all about, you know, what you're developing that's essentially going on the road for everyone else to drive. So um, that's something really cool and uh, something I really, you know, I, I know all the drivers and myself appreciate about this program is, is how involved they are, um, you know, on, on, on the off-track side as well. Um, and, and you never know. I mean, like I said, uh, Hyundai's really stepping up, you know, their, their presence in motorsports, and um, you never know where where this could eventually lead. I just can't wait to see how you look at the end of the year after spending weekend after weekend with Michael Lewis, the world's most positive human being. Like, there are just times where you're going to be like, dude, I just want to, like, pour my coffee on your shoes just to, like, get you to freaking mellow out. He's the happiest uh, puppy in the world, but it's a he, great he, program. Yeah, he certainly is. I spent my years with him in a former BMW and then in, in Europe in, in the FI Academy, so I, I came prepared. Oh, you <laughs> poor bastard. All right, my friend. Well, thanks, as always, Gabby, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, Marshall. I really appreciate you having me on here, and, uh, you know, let's, uh, let's just keep going and see where it takes us. Mateus Lace, is great to see you driving something fast here in America, coming off of two seasons with the AJ Foyt Racing IndyCar team. A little bit of a different venue, though. Daytona International Speedway, the JDC Miller Motorsports team, and a Cadillac DPI VR. What's that experience like, man? Tell us about the, the culture shock and maybe the vehicle shock as well. Yes, uh, a lot of changes uh, in my uh, career, and uh, I feel like IMSA is the right place to be as I'm not racing in IndyCar this season, at least for now. And um, everything is uh, very different. The fact that I got to share a car now, uh, that the car has to be comfortable, comfortable for all the drivers, uh, the fact that I don't get as much track time as I used to have. So a lot of little things that I still got to learn and understand the process a little bit more. But um, I'm very happy where I am. It's a pretty nice car. It's very fast. Uh, it's not a lot different than an Indy car. Of course, it has its differences. Um, and the main thing for me was uh, that I had never driven a car with a roof. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, that. what's that before? like? What's that like as someone who's used to just jumping in freely to a car? Uh, what's it like not being able to do that? It's very different. Like, even though we drive like normal cars daily, it's like a totally different thing, you know. And um, I don't know. It's just like the position is a little bit more straightforward. You can see the wheels. Um, and the car is a lot heavier, too. So, I'm still, like, uh, trying to tell my brain that I got to slow down a little because when you have, like, a whole career in single-seaters, you get to, like, the heavy cars and you want to brake as deep as you can. You want to try to carry as much speed as you can into the corner. But 
at the end of the day, those cars don't work with this driving style. So I kind of have to back up a little bit. And uh, like I, I'm constantly telling my brain to slow down, slow down, wait a little bit more, wait a little bit more, because I know if I can if I can be a little bit slower in the turn in, I can uh, uh, get out, get more out of the car in the exit. So uh, it's a little bit different, but at the same time, it's still like a racing car. And uh, that's what I like. And that's, uh, that's what I, uh, that's what I'm doing. So, and about the track, uh, man, it's, it's awesome. Like I I had never been, uh, I have never been there before. And um, the banking is like, I went, walk the track on thursday before the practice and uh it's just like so straight up and uh so different from uh, most of the ovals i've i've been before so uh pretty exciting actually and uh i'm uh, looking forward to the 24 hours in a couple of weeks so at least for right now you're scheduled for the long races with the team not a full season but i know you would love to try and slot in for more the sprint rounds this year let's talk a little bit about getting acclimated with a new team mateus would also say mm-hmm. that there's some familiar probably some familiar faces there obviously sebastian bourdais in the the sister jdc miller car we have i know at least some some fellow portuguese speakers in uh, joao barbosa uh who comes yes. from portugal christian fittipaldi obviously brazilian legend What's it like getting yeah. stuck into this new team? Uh, and maybe with some of the help from those, uh, you might know a little bit as well. Well, it was actually pretty cool. Like, it's always nicer when you get to, to a new place, a new series, a new team, and you have, like, familiar faces. You know, it just makes everything easier. Uh, I know I can rely on them for, like, information and uh, to ask new things or things that I don't know yet. So... Uh, since the first day I went to the team to to get to see the shop in the car, uh, Barbaza was there. I mean, I had never met him before, but he's from Portugal, so we both speak Portuguese, and this whole thing is just, you know how it is, right? It's just, uh, it makes everything easier. And then we talked about everything, the car and the series and the races. Um, also having Christian in the team, he's been help, very helpful. Uh, he reminds me a little bit of like, what tony did with me when i got to indycar so uh so far has been pretty good and um also like my my teammates on the 84 and on the 85 car um have had similar experience that i've had and all of them came from like single seaters most of them i think from the road to indy too so uh we have a lot of things in common and uh i'm trying to to learn as much as i can with them uh, and I'm very happy to be with uh, the 85 team. So although it's a lighter car, you've been training for years now to drive an Indy car that has no power steering, that makes crushing amounts of downforce uh, just something where you really have to be a, a bodybuilder almost to <laughs> get the most out of that car. I'm not yeah. saying driving the Cadillac is easy, but what was your first reaction to like, oh, I got power steering, man, is that nice? <laughs> yeah, it was very weird. Like, I don't know. The first impression was like, what's going on? Because it's so so different. And uh, the main difference for me was like, when you drive a car that doesn't have power steering, 
when you are in the slower corners, the steering wheel is a little bit lighter, but as you pick up speed, you go through the, the high-speed corners, the steering, the steering wheel gets a little bit heavier because of the downforce and everything. And uh, on the power steering side, it's totally different. Like, when you're going, the faster you go, the lighter the, the steering wheel is. So it was kind of like a sh shocking for me for the, the first couple laps, just getting used to it. Like, I remember I did like six or seven laps on the car and I was totally lost. Like, not not because I didn't know how to drive. It was just like so weird. I, I could barely hold the steering wheel straight. Um, and then after the session, I went and talked to Burdett because... Uh, I was like, I just wanted to know if he had the same experience that I had. Uh, and he said the same thing. He said exactly the same thing that I was feeling. So I was like, okay, I'm not, I'm not that crazy then. So, you know, after a couple laps, you start to get used to the car, to the whole thing, and uh, you feel comfortable. So now I'm pretty much, I'm, I'm feeling normal already. But the first impression is, uh, it's very weird. It's a different thing. I'd love to see your onboard data traces from those first few laps because Daytona, the Roval, has 12, cor quote, 12 corners. I bet your data yeah. probably looks like there's about 75 corners with trying to catch oh, yeah. up or get a hold of the uh, the power steering difference. Uh, one of the other things, Mateus, and this is a common thing for those who are the endurance drivers compared to the full-time drivers, you don't necessarily get a lot of seat time at uh, tests like the Roar. It's three days, seven sessions, etc., etc. But you, despite hours and hours of available track time, share with folks how that doesn't necessarily translate into you turning hours and hours in the car. Yeah, that's true. Um, I got there, and when I saw this schedule, I was like, okay, cool, seven sessions, a lot of track time. And then after two days and like five or six sessions, I had only like, I don't know, 19, 20 laps on the car. I was like, wow, that's not a lot. But yeah, I mean, that's, uh, it is what it is. It's the same for everybody. You know, it's not that I was getting less track time than the other drivers. It's just like uh, the way it is. And uh, I think it's important that all the drivers get to drive uh, in different, um, in different, uh, like, uh, grip level and different weather and at night during the day in the morning so you can understand a little bit more about the car and everything so um i felt like i could do a lot of laps in the morning and and at night and uh as well as a long run so i feel like uh, i'm pretty pretty as much prepared as i can be for the race of course i would like to have more lap time uh, on the car, but it is what it is. I think it's the same for everybody, and uh, I'm sure I'll get I'll get tired of driving after 24 hours. <laughs> well, let's let's cover two other things, Mateus. So, in IndyCar, in Indy Lights, in Formula Three, you're accustomed to passing people or being passed with a speed differential that's really small, right? Cars that are very similar. If a yeah. overtaking maneuver happens, it's nothing shocking or frightening whether you're going forward or going back a little bit. What was it like getting accustomed to being in a field full of four different classes, some cars that top speed-wise are 10, 20-plus slower? You guys arrive at the brake zones and apexes just <laughs> at vastly different speeds. You know, uh, your DPI is, is running 
Some of them feel like they're walking. What was that like for you? Because I'm sure that might have been a big shocker as well. Yeah, that was very different. That plus the the power steering, the first couple laps was not a great thing. But uh, anyways, it was nice, man. Like it's just you are constantly passing people, um, and it's uh, it's so weird because you gotta like understand the field and you gotta understand the cars that you have in front of you because you don't have only like one class besides the DPI. You have the GTD, the GTLM, and you have the the, the P2s too. So it's very hard because. When you go past the GTDs, it's kind of easy because they are a lot slower. But then you have like a GTLM in front of you, and the both cars are fast and they have some super nice tires. They can break very deep, so um, you kind of gotta understand and make sure uh, you know what you're doing when you're passing those guys. Because uh, we are going a lot faster, yes, but it's not that easy either. So um, I felt like I got some uh, some. Uh, run on traffic it was it was nice and uh i'm feeling great of course that's i think that's the main important thing uh, about those long races the 24-hour races and the 12 hours race it's all about uh, how you manage traffic it's not it's not that much about being the fastest guy out there but you gotta be the fastest guy passing cars so um i felt like i'm prepared and i felt like i've passed so many cars probably in these three days, in these uh, 35 laps, I passed more cars than I did in my whole IndyCar career. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's close on the IndyCar career side. So, having watched you win races in Indy Lights and demonstrate that you're someone who really should have had a fantastic two seasons in IndyCar, despite having some highlights... Unfortunately, uh, you landed with a team that really was not in a position to give you cars that were capable of showing all of your talent. Share with folks where you're at, what you're thinking, if you have any plans to try and add in some IndyCar races this year outside of IMSA, where your mind's at in you know, hopefully not closing the door on open wheel. Yeah, of course not. I mean, I love uh, all sorts of racing, but IndyCar is, uh, has a very special place in my heart. And, um, of course, I want to be back. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be this year or not, but um, I know I'm capable of winning races and being up there in the top. So right now, I'd rather, I'd rather be racing somewhere else if I'm not in a team that gives me the chance to be running in the front. So that's my my main mentality right now uh i have drivers and friends of mine that are racing there kind of grew up with me and uh they're all racing in the front and winning races and uh i was always right there with them in my career so i know i could be there too so it's just a matter of fact of uh being with the the in the right team at at the right time so if the chance comes of course i'm i'm gonna be very happy and prepared for it but for for now uh for this year i think it's gonna be hard for to see myself back in an indie car uh, i'm trying to focus on my imsa imsa side and trying to get some some sprint races done besides my endurance and championship but of course it's something that i have in mind and uh, i want to be back as soon as i can amen well look forward to seeing how your rolex 24 debut goes sebring as well going to be doing some pretty amazing 
races this year with the JDC Miller Motorsports team. And hopefully get to check in and see how those go for you.